Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi, everybody. Hi. Oh, Emily's in an oppressively good mood today. How are you, Em? I'm absolutely fine, Annabelle. Thank you. But um, I am only sleeping... Uh, in two hour stints and I wake up every two hours and I go oh my god I'm awake and then I I fall back to sleep again but as a result I'm feeling quite I want to say in a bubble but that just makes me sound like I'm ready to go out and uh, and and uh, meet the world socialize with one other family only which makes obviously makes everyone feel like so unbelievably stressed no I feel a bit stoned basically and I think that, which, and I'm emphatically not stoned, I hasten to add. So it's that strange There's thing. There's a sort of like, myth, isn't there, that people think that when you wake up in the night, people who sleep, that you wake up in a terrible panic. Why did you wake up? Were you panicking? And you don't wake up having a heart attack going, <gasps> you just go, oh, fuck, I'm awake. Yeah, oh, fuck, I'm and awake. And then you're so- incredibly awake and alert and then you have a problem. Exactly, but I'm not alert. I have I don't tip over into the alertness. So I'm just basically like, oh fuck, I'm awake. Back to sleep. Two hours later, oh fuck, I'm awake again. Back to sleep. Oh fuck, I'm awake, and now I'm actually just going to go out and do a twenty minute yoga session. Do you look at the clock when you wake up? Do you look at the time? Sometimes, yeah. Never look at the time. Okay, that's the, I used that's to be what in, they say. No, but, but I, I used just to be think in it's really hard not to. And try not to. If you can not have an alarm clock, not have a phone by your bed, don't look at the time, and then it doesn't matter because then the time just sort of swells and passes, and you don't know. And it could be that you were awake for twenty minutes or two hours. You just don't know. And I can think I just a, say yeah. that uh, our guest <laughs> is inappropriately speaking <laughs> before she's been introduced, and um, because 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 she feels too. At home here because she is, I will tell, as I will explain in a minute, not a stranger to us. Um, anyway, how are you, Annabelle? Uh, thanks for asking, Em. I'm absolutely fine, but uh, I feel like a terrible person today. I mean, I feel unpleasant. I'm being quite unpleasant. I'm churning. I'm angry. My heart's pounding. I feel more disconnected than usual, but very unwilling and unable to connect. I feel bitter. I feel regretful. I'm in a terrible mood. And when I'm around cheerful people like you, I feel worse. And yesterday I was Miss Dolly fucking Sunbeam. And today, honestly, I'm like a sort of sort of slightly fat thundercloud just sort of storming around the room. I love um, it when you're in a bad mood, though. I know. You're hardly quaking me in too. your boots, are you? <laughs> no, 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 me too. You're not meant to be speaking. I better introduce her. She's out of control. Okay. So... Our guest today is almost indecently close to our hearts. But that aside, totally objectively, no prejudice or bias whatsoever, she's written the must-read memoir of the summer. Uh, the Consequences of Love by Gavandra Hodge is about addiction, death, grief, parties, love, trauma, and the idea that if we're brave enough to look back at loss from long, long ago, we can transform our lives. Believe us, this is a hell of a yarn. Gavantra Hodge, you're annoying. How are you? Uh, I'm absolutely <laughs> fine. But yesterday when I went on my sort of state-sanctioned walk, one a day actually still, um, and I was wandering down uh, towards Dulwich and I passed this very sort of beautiful mid-century modern block of flats and, and they're these sort of lovely quite bijou uh, single occupancy sort of bedsits basically, studio flats. And I had this, 
yearning that sort of rippled through my whole body, this pang of wanting one of those flats just for me and to be able to visit it and not tell my family who I live with that I have this other home that I visit and is quiet and is my space and it's sort of like it would be an extension of me as a human being and I would feel safe what and happy. What would that look like? What would an extension of you as a human being look oh like? Oh my god, it says. would just be, it would be quite sort of clean sort of blonde wood so that kind of I mean this is an imaginary version of course in which there in which life is clean and tidy and so on but there would be sort of Danish furniture and a desk and a book and a bit like a sort of a European but quite nice hotel room uh, where so it's actually not an extension of me it's like a dream extension of me where I'd just be able to sit and read and drink tea and make make lunch just for me (laughs) Never have to make lunch for another human fucking being again. Uh, and What's be, for lunch is now my absolute, oh, like, <laughs> my genuinely least Genuinely want sentence. to strangle people. Um, and just be able to be quiet for a sort of more than three and a half seconds, actually. <laughs> and and, and it, was, it was a deep longing. And, and I think now my ambition in life is to get to a point where I can buy it and not tell anyone and just go there and be secret. And, and be happy. full Virginia Woolf, basically. Yeah. Yeah, well, kind of a modern, just oh, just fucking some quiet, please, for my brain. I know I know a couple of writers, really quite successful writers, who've done exactly that. They've mm. got well, themselves a sorry, flat. Sorry, fuck them. No, which I is... <laughs> well, it's, it's supposedly... It's supposedly their working space, but it's quite clear to me, and I'm sure to you and a lot of people listening, it's not just their working space, it's their space. It's right? their happy place, you know, it's their, you know, they'd be, there might even be a chaise long. <laughs> quite a, yeah, do you know what I mean? Just for lying. Tone it down, Gary. Sorry. <laughs> That's just rude. I'm not suggesting doing anything, I'm just reading a book, Annabelle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It always starts with reading a book. Yeah, so exactly. how is your lockdown? How are you um, feeling? It's all right, you know, ups and downs, good days, bad days, kind of okay days, terrible days. Uh, yes, I have made bread. Yes, I have done a puzzle. Uh, yes, I did get Disney+. Plus. Uh, so I've sort of done all the cliched things. Um, I, I haven't really read books. I've felt very kind of jangly and unable to focus and concentrate. I've sort of laid down in the garden in the sun for about 25 minutes before thinking fuck I've got to mop the floor um so yeah it's been up and down uh, very kind of I've had to work quite a lot because I had a feeling that my all my work and I'm probably right will dry up so I better take everything I could get and then put all the money in the bank and just sort of hope for a future how does it feel to bring out a book kind of in a sort of vacuum particularly one we'll go on to why it's so personal but it is as intensely personal as your book it's a double feeling like I'm the sort of person that really looks on the bright side of things so I'm like at least my book is out in the world and people can access it what's sad for me is that I have spent uh in theory all my life writing this book in practice five years really slaving struggling crying you know it took everything out of me to write this book um and I was and this is meant to be the most exciting moment of my entire life so far it being published and there was meant to be a party and you know it was meant to be in the windows of bookshops and all this kind of fandango and none of that is happening and that's quite sad uh if you look at it 
But actually, how I feel, I don't feel sad. It's quite overwhelming, the book. It's very personal, quite exposing. I am kind of contrary to appearances, quite a private person. So actually, it feels quite safe to be at one remove from everything. And in fact, this is about as much attention as I can handle. And I think if I was right now going out, meeting people, having parties, having to stand around talking about it, it might feel too overwhelming. I don't know. I'm sure I would have handled it. But to be able to extend that process. So I'm sure those things will happen. And I'm looking forward to those things happening at some point in the future. But right now to do it in chunks feels quite safe, actually, to be honest. More manageable. Yeah. Do you think as well, the mechanism, I mean, like you said, you are a really private person. And so much of the book is is about Mm. unlocking that private the things that you kept completely private and sealed Mm. off and so in some ways it is probably a a kind of blessing that it it, that it's only in in incremental yes we're going to see any positivity protected from your own book yes exactly (laughs) so can Um, you tell us can you just tell us a bit about really what it's about and, and 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 why you went there yes sure um so I had like an absurdly uh eventful first sort of well life like beginning of my life um and when I was a little girl my father was a heroin addict my mother my mother was an alcoholic a sort of glamorous heroin addict and alcoholic my dad was a hairdresser my mum was a model we lived in Chelsea dad sold drugs to aristocrats up and down the king's road they would come and sit in our sitting room and take heroin and smoke joints and when i was about sort of six seven eight i began to sit with them uh, partly because i loved my dad and loved hanging out with them partly because i was scared that they would burn the house down so i would wait for them all to pass out and then go and sort of blow out the candles stub out the cigarettes and i think what that created was a sense of extraordinary vigilance which is apparently quite common in the children of addicts because no one is looking after you you're looking after yourself so you get this sort of almost you know uh 360 watching the world thing and you don't really think that anyone else is going to keep you safe you have to keep yourself safe my parents uh, got clean after, you know, we were raided by the police and blah, blah, blah. My parents got clean. My dad went into rehab. My mum went to AA. Um, and then uh, we had a sort of a period of about four years when life was relatively normal. I went to a, I got into a good secondary school. I sort of pretended to be a normal person. We went on family holidays. And then when I was 14 years old, my little sister Candy, who was nine at the time, died in a hotel room in Tunisia on a holiday, suddenly of an airborne virus, uh, which was an extraordinary, terrifying, wild, um, awful thing. And I witnessed it. I was in the room as it happened, as I I watched her die. Um, And my father was there too. And it sort of froze me in a moment of fear and panic um, that I never really emerged from. And not only that, my father, who had been clean for four years, started drinking again, uh, very quickly started taking drugs again, very quickly started selling drugs again to his old Aristo kind of buddies who would come down to the shop and he'd sell them coke and sort of drew me into his world because meanwhile my mum became a born-again Christian 
and was very open in her grief. And I found that terrifying. And I found my dad's approach to grief much more amenable because I could lose myself in his sort of fun, drunk, crazy world where grief didn't play a part. And also at school, no one spoke to me about my sister. Like literally no one said a word about it. So I pretended that she hadn't died because that seemed to be the safest option. And what that meant, and, and you know, we're talking via my father leaving my mother from a girl from at my school. So he not only took drugs, sold drugs, gave drugs to me, gave them to all my friends, became interested in younger girls. So this is a crazy kind younger of chaotic, even than you, right? Younger than me, yeah. This is a crazy chaotic time. When I get to about sixteen, my dad moves out of home to move in with this younger woman. Uh, I mess up my GCSEs. The only thing I ever thought that I could do or be was sort of vaguely clever. And I sort of loved Latin and chemistry, partly because there was order and control in those worlds, which I didn't have in my own. Uh, Messed up my GCSEs, thought, shit, I have to kind of buck up my ideas. So kind of steered myself. And it was like a, a, you know, like a ferry having to sort of yank itself around. Took myself in a different direction. Worked really hard and actually succeeded and got into... Cambridge to do classics and sort of changed my life but nonetheless the the things that had happened were inside of me and I'd never spoken about them and I sort of pretended to be a different person I sort of hid the person that had seen those things done those things been that person inside this sort of veneer of this other person who was this sort of clever successful you know party girl but nonetheless you know going on a different path got a good job um, met a lovely man, got married, had children, got an even better job. And then suddenly I would find memories of my childhood sort of bubbling up and I would sort of batten them down. And then... Because prior to that, I remember when, when Emily and I first mm. got to know you very well, which was uh, 17, 18 years ago. Yeah. Um, you'd done that thing that I think is probably very common with people who've experienced extreme trauma or grief or, you know, a, a, something like that, where you you'd packaged it. So mm, if you yeah. were asked about it, you had a way to present, right? Yeah. And it could be, and it's, you know, my dad was this kind of great charismatic raconteur. He liked to make people laugh. He liked make, to make people feel comfortable. Um, and I kind of wanted to be like him so I could tell it as a story that yeah. was like, oh, wow, what a crazy childhood. Oh, aren't you fun? Aren't you glamorous? And I kind of did that as a child as well. You know, people liked me at school because they could come down to my dad's salon and, you know, drink and smoke. I thought this is what made people like me, the kind of the glamorous, fun, sort of, you know, I'll drink more martinis than you kind of version of me who had a slightly crazy hippie childhood. But I never, I never wanted to make people cry. I never wanted to make people, because it, it felt like such a terrifying kind of ugly making childhood. And I didn't want people to just look at me and think, oh, you know, sister of a dead girl. But also we were we were brought up in a time, you know, teenager in the 90s. Mm. We Ooh. thought we had it all when all we really had was men sticking their hands up our skirts. And the one mm. thing we <laughs> weren't allowed to be was don't be the Debbie Downer. Yeah, don't yeah. be boring. Yeah, my, my, I mean, the worst thing, you know, my dad believed that the most important thing was to be cool. Don't be boring. Like, if my dad told me I was boring, I'd really failed. Like, there was nothing I could do to impress him apart from be fun. Um, and I, ideally, like, look good as well, you know, look hot. And I think, as well, none of us 
had any idea about damage or what damage or the consequences no. of of, no. of behavior or or that you know when we were kissing unsuitable men or you know uh heartbroken because of um the situations not going the way that we want them to be or trying or to laugh putting everything ourselves off. in active danger yeah mm. exactly or laughing or laughing off horrible situations like wasn't mm. it hilarious when this yeah. this and this we nearly died ha 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 and uh exactly and without any without any sort of awareness of consequence at all mm. i think i was completely con- until you know until for me, when, you know, aspects of my personality started malfunctioning seriously in all in all different areas, mm. I had no idea that, you know, that you have to go back and go through things and work out exactly mm. where it is that it's it, it's so fractured. So, you're saying it started to, it started to bubble, did it? At a it certain started point in your to life. kind of, yeah, it started to bubble up. I mean, I'd always written, I'd always wanted to write, but the stories I'd written, I'd never wanted to write about my childhood I don't know why. I just felt it was too confusing, too dark. I just wanted to to pack it away and leave it packed away. Um, But then I came to work at Tatler. And funnily enough, at Tatler, two things sort of happened. Um, The magazine was about the people who had taken drugs in our sitting room when I was little. And I would, you know, we would do archive pieces and I would turn the pages and I would see them and I'd be like, God, they're here. And we would be writing stories about them and it'd be like, oh, there's that's going on. I also, and I remember about those mm. people, you telling us that some of those people had been kind to you mm. and some of those people had turned around and given you Chinese burns yeah, when you were six some of and them, had been monsters. Of, yeah, some of them had been really terrifying. And, they, you know, looking at the pictures of them in the magazine made me feel scared in my body like I was still seven years old which started Mm. to sort of make me think god there's something inside me like I am still I'm still feeling as scared as I felt when I was seven which means I'm probably still feeling as scared as I felt when I was 14 and saw my sister die Um, and then also I was put in a position of great responsibility at the magazine so the editor our all of our great friends Kate went on maternity leave and I was put in charge and I'd always I'd always been a deputy because the feeling of being so responsible freaked me out because I'm a catastrophist. And so I was feeling constantly on edge and constantly anxious that I would mess it up in some phenomenal way. Um, and then I was also still writing. And I went to this um, writing course for the book that I was writing at the time, which was about, it's just kind of a science fiction about a mad girl. Anyway, it's, it was too insanely nuts but I thought it was actually great I loved it I think I sent you both some of it and you were like oh yeah (laughs) so I went to this course which was about kind of writing for young adults and there was on the first evening you know it was all kind of teachers and blah blah and we were sitting around in this room I'd had some wine and they said write about a moment from your childhood or from your young adulthood write about something that you really remember and try and you know feel in your body remember how it felt in your body to be that person and I started writing and I started writing something and then other stuff started coming out that I hadn't even remembered and I was just like it just felt very powerful and very strong what I was doing and I was like shit maybe I shouldn't write about the 14-year-old sort of magical being who travels to the moon. Maybe I shouldn't write that story. Who knew? Maybe I should write my story. Uh, But it wasn't as easy. And I thought that would be easy. I thought, okay, cool. I know what happened to me. I'll just write it down. Uh, But I started writing. And writing almost made me go mad because I would wake up every morning, write about my past, which had not been managed 
in a therapeutic way at all. And it just all sort of splurged out like I'd opened a case full of sort of So monsters. basically, yeah. yeah. So it was can open, worms and everywhere. Literally. Don't know what to do with them professionally, yeah. as I don't know how to mould this into no. a book. Don't know what to do with them personally, as in I'm losing my Yeah, I really, I, there were moments where, and I felt so dislocated from my friends, my family. I felt like I was in, behind glass, in a bubble, underwater, all those things. I felt like I was so by myself uh, with this. Um, and I start, you know, I get kind of like, eczema and psoriasis and stuff when I'm stressed and it was just like bubbling up everywhere all over me and I was just like okay shit I, and I was not sleeping and I was worrying about I love it when you're like it's almost it's almost like it's almost like universe your body explodes your mind explodes (laughs) and then um and so I decided to go to therapy and I remember telling you guys you're like what you've not been to therapy you (laughs) mad woman and I was like well I'd had some quite unfortunate experiences with therapy I'd been like a couple of times when I was little and it just never worked out and also I'd had to go I mean I don't know if you ever had to do these things but had to go to those like families anonymous sort of meetings for children's of addicts a couple of times I hated them so much but that was partly the the privacy thing like I hated having to share I found it very intrusive and weird those environments I'm sure they're very helpful for lots of people but for me they just didn't work so I was not a fan of therapy Uh, but then I decided you know this is insane I can't do this by myself I would imagine that therapy for children and young people Mm. 30 years ago yes was extraordinarily unevolved compared to where we are now. So yes. it probably was pretty prehistoric yes. and unpleasant yes. in, in, you know, in, in many, many circumstances. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it didn't work for me and the way that it was done didn't work for me at all. Uh, so I went to a therapist and she was magic and it really helped. And it just sort of, she constantly would use these analogies like let's, you know, the books are all over the floor. Let's arrange, let's tidy everything up. Let's put everything in its place. Let's clean this sort of, this place that is your memory, your experience. And then she also did this process called EMDR, which is where you, it's kind of post-traumatic stress um, therapy, where you have to, as your eyes move from left to right, you have to remember a moment from your past, a really specific moment, like the moment of watching my sister die, or the moment of watching my dad flirting with a young woman, and remember how it felt in my body, remember everything about it. And then that process is meant to take the feelings out of your body into your brain so to turn them from kind of felt experience into memory which is what I hadn't done and and that makes it manageable. Am I right in thinking that you basically had no memories? Yes oh yes so this was sorry I forgot a whole other very important uh Uh, impetus for this just to yes, you. Thank, thank you Annabelle this was the other thing and it was a very odd moment um and I hadn't because I just didn't think about candy I didn't talk about candy like my husband thought it was incredibly strange like he'd say to us oh it's uh, candy's birthday next week what should we do and I'd be like look to him like what do you want me to do you know what the fuck should we do to celebrate the birthday of a dead child you know um so I remember going to the park and I had two daughters I have two daughters um who I hadn't even twigged were exactly the same age difference of me as me and Candy and I just remember looking at them playing together thinking shit that was me and my sister I just looked at them sort of tumbling around together and so interwoven in the way that siblings are and I thought fuck I had that I had that relationship and I cannot remember it I cannot remember 
remember how she spoke, how she felt, a single thing that she did. I cannot remember any of it. I cannot remember how it felt for her to hug me. I cannot remember what it was like to have her energy in my, you know, I had a sister. I had a sister and I shared a bedroom with her until she was like, I think I moved out. I got my own room when I was like 11. So that was, you know, seven years of my life. I shared a bedroom with this human being. And I couldn't remember anything about her. And I just thought, fuck, what have I done to myself? This is so awful. She died. And then I forgot her. So it's like she, she's gone twice. Because, you know, when people die, that doesn't have to be how it works. They can live on in your head. That you can maintain a relationship with them. Uh, but I had just obliterated her. And I thought it was my fault. I thought because I had drunk and taken drugs and actively tried to forget her, that I had sort of you know, just destroyed the memory of her. And so it's almost so, like you'd, you'd wiped her out again. Yeah, exactly. I had just deleted her. Um, and, then, and then I felt guilty. So I was like, shit, you know, our families, when they die, we are the ones, we are the guardians of their memory. We are the ones who keep their fire alight. And I hadn't done it. I had been so remiss in my sort of looking after the memory of Candy. I had done nothing. I'd not spoken to my children about her. I'd not spoken to anyone about her. I'd not spoken to my mother about her. I had just sort of let her go out. And I felt guilty, sad, sort of desolate about it. Um, and so part of what the work that I did with the therapist was to try and sort of bring her back to life in my heart and in my head. And, and then and part of writing the book was that as well. And to just kind of give her a, an existence, you know, after her life had been cut so short. So that was the that was the process. It's very odd to hear you talking about a person who died very suddenly of an airborne virus mm. and releasing a book about that mm. right now. Yes. And it is very weird. And I remember in the early, early days of the virus and the lockdown feeling because my dad also my dad was asthmatic and he also died suddenly in the night of not being able to breathe. So that's what they both died of. Um, and I remember in the first days of the lockdown feeling those symptoms of like tight chestedness, not being able to breathe. But this is my and I, I had panic attacks when I was a teenager and I would my, make my parents take me to A&E because I thought I was about to die because I couldn't breathe. So I couldn't in my head. I was like, is this do I have symptoms of coronavirus, which is very possible. I live in London. Or is this a panic attack? I can't tell. But I, um, and I, when I was a kid and in my 20s, actually, I was a terrible hypochondriac. Um, but I kind of, I don't, I, I didn't linger with those feelings for very long. I kind of moved on from them. Uh, and I think it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny I, I, because you are generally, you know, you've always, always certainly give the impression of being one of the calmest people I have ever met. But I did <laughs> always know before I knew before I knew more beyond the set piece of Candy, mm. that you were a bit of a maniac when it came to hypochondria and a mm. bit of a maniac when it came to airports and travel. And yes. now, of oh, course, yes. yeah, she yeah, dies yeah. in Tunisia. Yes. It oh, all yes. starts... Or, you know, all these, play, all these pieces of the, of the jigsaw find their place in the end, right? Yeah, the travel anxiety is a thing that... Actually, it's kind of... St that's, that's a kind of a hangover of it all that's still with me, to be honest. Like, I hate... I get really freaked out with travel. I really have to be at airports on time. I don't like being, I don't like going to places abroad that do not have like first world, 
you know, hospital situations. Um, well, there's not much risk of anyone going anywhere for a while. So you don't need to worry about that for a bit. No, exactly. So this all happens to you or, or it all, it doesn't even begin when you're 14 because you're already the child of addicts. Mm. But, you know, there's this, there's this explosive, tragic, appalling you know, catastrophic event when you're mm. when you when you're fourteen. Of course, most fourteen-year-olds are very far from death. They're mm. untouchable. They're mm. immortal. They're mm. psych- psychopathically egocentric and narcissistic. Mm. And 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 you, and you weren't allowed to have that. But now, of course, in the time that we're living in now, we feel closer to death. Yeah. What advice would you give to people about handling grief if and when? I think. You handle grief when you're able to handle grief. And I think because we're in this very strange limbo phase where someone dies and you are unable perhaps to be with them, unable to be with the people that you love, unable to go through the kind of the normal processes of grief that we might use to help us in, you know, engage with our loved ones who've left it doesn't mean that you're never going to be able to do it. You know, you can think, okay, I'm going to allow myself just to take one step at a time, just exist in this strange place that I am right now. But I also know that at some point, if I'm unable to grieve now properly, I will be able to grieve in the future because it's not like you, there's a window of grief that you have to exist in. And once you're past it, that's it. You, you, you've you not done the work of grief and you're never going to get over it. Um, although I, I, I would say that grief is not something that you get over. It's a con- it's a constant relationship with, a, with the person who's gone, who you loved. Um, but I, what I would say is that what you can still do, and, you know, we are very lucky in our modern pandemic because we can still communicate with people in this way, is the thing to do when someone has died, and I know this because I approach my father's death very differently to how I approach my sister's death, is you have a moment there to really crystallise and secure your memories of them. And that's sort of, you know, it's forever, but like the first month can be quite key in that. So in that month, um, and this is something that I spoke to Julia Samuel about, who's amazing on grief, um, you talk about them, you think about them, you talk to other people who knew them. So you might just sit and just like exchange memories and think, oh God, do you remember when they did that? And it's those things that really secure, you're kind of almost creating new neural pathways. You're creating memories by those conversations, by looking at photographs, by writing things down, by looking at videos, by just engaging with them, like listening to the music they loved, just just thinking about them. And that will kind of trigger more memories. And those memories are the things that feed you then for the rest of your life, because those are those are that that's that person in your head going forward. And I, I think it's really hard. It's really interesting talking about whether or not you how you grieve, because I mean, my dad died and I couldn't I couldn't grieve him for for mm. years, actually. I mm. think about five years afterwards when I started having panic attacks, which I think are in, linked with all that kind of suppressed. Mm. I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't, you know, for, for lots of reasons. But I think the idea of him being gone was sort of, was impossible. And so therefore I was yeah. like, well, I'm just going to cope. But also I had a young baby and I had a mm. new husband and everything. And you, you feel like, okay, well, I'm going to focus on this element of my life, not, not the other. Mm. And then I remember when my phone got stolen 
it got swiped out of my hand by kids on the street and I chased after them and I realised the reason I was so keen to get my phone back was because it had answer machine messages mm. from my dad mm. and that was a way of knowing that they were there I didn't listen to them but now they were gone and yeah. then his voice was gone and that was and then that was the beginning of my process of but that was a good few years later mm. anyway so it can hit you and it can hit you at any time but also until very recently people weren't documented in the same way we have videos of people mm. everybody that we love and their voices and their facial expressions and their funny mm. old tics mm. but we only had memory until really 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 quite recently mm. so but I think our memories were better before as well like you you know we we, yeah. ha- we have sort of outsourced our memories to these devices whereas you know we have to remember that our memories are an amazing resource and actually if you invest a bit of time and energy into your memory you can hold a human being in your head quite completely so what is your relationship with candy like today um so candy now plays a part in our lives we um so I I looked at photographs of her I talked to people about her I talked to my mum about her which was a massive thing because my mum's grief as I say had really alienated me and I had always felt too overwhelmed by her response to actually talk to her about candy but I kind of I I went and we spoke about her and and I um and that was a really beautiful thing to do and I read her school reports and I spoke to my children about her and I made her a part of me she's a part of my identity now so it felt like she exists in the world um so my my daughters and I every year for her birthday we make this massive completely insane cake which is I I kind of I make like six times the amount of icing you're meant to make we go to Sainsbury's we buy everything in the sweet thing we just like throw it on it so it just like piles up and it sort of sags with it and then we eat it and we feel insane and but that's so (laughs) so now my children associate candy with like a bonkers crazy cake day so that's really lovely and that because candy loved sweet she loved pink she was quite nuts um but then also okay now I'm going to go a bit weird so I went and there's this is in my book as well I go and see this woman who does like well, I used to before we weren't allowed to do such things, who does my acupuncture. And she's also a bit kind of woo-woo and she does Reiki. And then one time she, and I'd never told her about Candy. One time she was like, there's, a, there's someone in the room with us. Um, she's very, she's very kind of insistent and frustrated. And she, she sort of wants to talk. And she's very, she's a young girl. She smells very sweet. Does this ring any bells? And I was like, oh, you know, I felt kind of completely mad. I was like, well, it could be my sister. And so she's like, well, you need to tell her what happened to her. She doesn't know how she died. Um, so I, which was completely nuts, but I just thought, you know, I'm not going to leap to any conclusions here. I don't know what I do believe and what I don't believe, but I'm just going to engage with this moment because it doesn't seem dangerous and it might be helpful. So I imagined or felt this person, this in the room coming to me and I gave her a hug and I told her what had happened to her so it now feels like I can imagine her in sort of you know I can imagine her presence and that doesn't have to be anything more than my imagination it's up to you what you think that is but it does feel helpful it's an extraordinary scene in the book that it's a very very upsetting Mm. scene even though it's based on something as you say that we could all just say oh well that's just woo woo yeah exactly how has this journey that you've been on Mm. affected your relationship with your mother um 
it's really affected it uh, in an incredibly positive way. I mean, my relationship with my mother improved hugely. I mean, I, I always loved my mum. She always loved me. But we had gone through so much and it had been so difficult. Um, and she had gone through so much. You know, her daughter had died. Her husband had been unfaithful. She's, it was all incredibly hard for her. Um, and I was, a, you know, a, as well as being a sad, messed up teenager, also a really bullshit and quite difficult teenager. And teenage, fem- girl teenagers' relationship with their mums are never straightforward. But when I had kids and when my, sis- and when my dad died, so those two things happening around the same time, my, my, younger, my older daughter was one when my dad died, Uh, allowed us to carve out a different sort of relationship with each other. You know, she was wonderful. She looked after the girls. I saw her much more. She moved nearby. My mum now lives down the road in a kind of residential kind of... It's a sort of... Not quite a care home, but almost... uh, and in, she has type 2 diabetes, she, but she's very, still very religious. She's still very engaged with the girls' lives. And to, we just have a, a closer, more straightforward relationship and we can talk about the past. So there, there used to be things between us that were taboo, um, like where was she when I was in the sitting room with the addicts? What was she doing? But now, and it felt like those things were taboo, but they were so massive. And why could we not talk about them? But now that we can talk about them and there's like an honesty in our exchange that makes things much easier and much more straightforward and much happier. So, yeah, it has really transformed. It was difficult. You know, she read the book and it was hard for her. It was a hard process. Yeah, you know, she was one of the first people who read the book. She went through it. She did it quite slowly. Um, I said to call, I would call her a lot. And sometimes she'd get quite sad because she, it, it, in some places in the book, she feels like a blank. She feels like an emptiness, I think. But that's because she was... Because she sort of, she kind of couldn't deal with what was happening. And she's a real introvert, whereas my dad was the extrovert. So she just sort of went into herself in a way that was made her missing for me as a, as a child. Yeah. And she knows that. Uh, but, you know, that's, but that's a, a response to the awful things that happened to her. But also, again, it's never too late. No, God, no. It's never too late to talk to your mother about the things that you, you're terrified of talking to her about. And, you know, do these things with your parents uh, because you will only, you don't want to have regrets when people die. I mean, obviously we can all have regrets, but, you know, if there's something that you think you will regret having not said to your parent if they died, then bloody say it. And if there's the possibility of repair, how magnificent. Yeah. I yeah, mean, exactly. exactly. it's a risk and worth taking. Just, Gotcha, absolutely. I mean, everyone knows what their parent is, but... So after opening the can... Yes. The worms everywhere. Organising the the worms. Mm -hmm. Turning the worms wriggling around the floor into a book. Yes. um, A book that Emily and I would both urge everybody listening to please, please read. A thousand percent. Um, How do you feel? Um, I feel good. I mean, I think... um, the whole process, the writing the book, the doing therapy definitely kind of got me to a different place with it. Got me to a place where this happened and I am not scared every night when I go to sleep that I'm going to die, which probably I would, or my children will, which probably is where I would have been had I not done this, you know. So that suggests to me that I am in a healthier place mentally. Um, So it feels good. I mean, it feels, I have to remind myself, it's very weird to put something in a book because it's almost, it, it doesn't mean that it's closed and it's finished, um, and I have to remember, as I talk about it, I had to do this one event, this sort of pre-book event where I had to walk around a room 
And people say, so what's your book about? And I'd have to give like the elevator pitch for my book, which is really fucking hard to do because it's quite complicated. And then to walk away from the person and be like, but it all ends really happily. So also, I guess what you risk there is turning it back into a different kind of set piece. Exactly. So turn and, and becoming dissociated from it, like forgetting that these things happen to me, that these things are my in my body, they're my story, they're real things that happen. They're not just words on a page. They're not just, you know, a pitch they're not they belong to me um and so it's it's important not to sort of again create that space between me and my story which is sort of what I did when I was younger right? there was a sort of a gap between who I presented to the world and who I really was and that and that, that space between was the space where you can go fucking nuts so I kind of I am mindful of not losing sight of the fact that this is me and these are my people and this is my story and this is sad and this is happy and I I can still feel the emotions but it also has to be manageable enough for me to sort of talk to people I don't know about it without sort of crying because that would be and also to and also to move forward through your life Mm. and for your feelings to keep evolving for your relationship with Candy and everybody else who's still alive in your life to keep developing and growing exactly and And I think I think your book is going to help a lot of people as well actually because I think it's I mean it helped me you know it 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 helped it helped to connect with that with people's pain and Mm. to see how they evolve and move through it is a kind of it's a massive gift so you know thanks also it's a massive reminder that you know everybody's going through something yeah gotcha you know don't you know we must you know we, we keep doing it but it's good to be reminded not to judge all the human books by their very deceptive covers yes I mean and that was partly what was happening to me and it used to sometimes piss me off like I would meet people and they would look at me and they think oh we know all about you you know you you're so privileged look at you with your posh job and your posh university and I'd be like you have no fucking idea about me. <laughs> Fuck off. You know, they just, I was just like, you have no idea. How dare you judge me and put me into a box? But you'd put the wallpaper on, you'd yeah, chosen the colours, yeah, you'd put down exactly, the frills and bows. Exactly. Yeah. I was just like, do not judge anyone. Just let, if they want to tell you their story, let them tell you their story. But do not imagine that just because it looks good, it is. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, listen, it was bravely felt and bravely fought and bravely written. And we couldn't admire or love you more. Oh, and thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the podcast oh, today. We love you so much, love Gabby. You we love you. Love you too. Bye, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rivkin and Emily McMeekin of The Mid-Alt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. My alone time is for your safety. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.